Hey everybody, this is Brad Willis. Not too long ago, a foundation in Greenville that supports writers called the Emrys Foundation asked me to come speak at a place called The Velo Fellow and talk about murder, etc. Even though I spent 10 years working in television and have produced 20 episodes of this show, it was the first time I'd been on stage to talk about anything for an hour. Fortunately, I had a very friendly crowd, and I thought it might make for a decent bonus episode. I did edit this, so this isn't the whole talk, but you'll hear at least some of what I had to say that night. So thank you to the Velo Fellow, the Emerus Foundation, and to Mr. John Jeter, who's a longtime friend and introduced me here. I've known Brad Willis for a long, long time, and it's really cool that he agreed to do the Emerus Reading Room. I'm a member of the board of Emerus, emerus.org, E-M-R-Y-S dot O-R-G. Go to the website. We have all kinds of cool things. Scott Gould is sort of involved, and he's a stud too, and you know, we love Scott. And um, so go to go to emerus.org. We have great programs for youth. We have a writing month coming up. We have a reading room. We have writing rooms where we actually learn stuff. I do a pop-up where we just sort of pop up from place to place and do writing prompts. It's really funky and weird. So that's Emerus. But tonight we've got Brad Willis. Brad is a was an award-winning television reporter. And um, he and I go way, way, way back when I ran the handlebar. And he and his wife, Michelle, would come to see shows. And it was really a great experience for everybody. And now, if you read any bit of Brad and the way he does his, what we call shoe leather journalism, and the way he does his writing, you want to just say, I can't write like that. I can't tell a story like that. Never mind that he's got great material, but the way he puts it together is just brilliant. And you're going to see a little bit of this tonight that tells the story of Greenville's very dark underbelly. Please help me welcome Brad Willis. Y'all have no idea how surreal it is to have John introduce me like that for a variety of reasons. One, as he said, and I'm going to sit because, number one, I'm, I'm more comfortable and I'm absolutely terrified to be up here right now. But John and I, as he said, met each other a long time ago when he was running the handlebar. When I first got, got to Greenville, I was coming out of Mississippi and I came here to take a job. And the very first people I fell in with were a bunch of people who worked for Channel 4. And I see a couple of them here today, I guess. The very first thing they did once they realized that I liked music was put a double CD in my hand. And I've probably listened to that double CD uh, a thousand times over the course of the last 20 years. At the very top of that double CD was this. Are we ready? You're going to have to help me welcome our favorite band all the way from Virginia. Live at the handlebar, Eddie from Ohio. So that is what has been in my head for the last 20 years. So to have John introduce me here tonight is a really weird and wonderful thing. John's been a, a really good friend to me, as, as has his wife, Kathy, over the course of the last 20 years. And I'm, I'm honored to be here tonight. To, I mean, I've, I've been reading Scott Gould for a long time, but never ever had the chance to, to, to meet him. So to have you sitting over there uh, both terrifies me and it's also amazing. So uh, welcome. It's cool to see the kids from the governor's school here. All kinds of different people here. We've got, uh, you know, people who listen to the show, people who are friends of friends. And if you do listen to the show, you can look over there in the corner and I don't want to point him out, but I'm going to have to. Uh, Charles Wakefield is standing right over there. I'm here tonight because I got two phone calls. 
The first phone call I got, I was in Mississippi back in 1999, and I was working as a state house reporter. If you think South Carolina politics are messed up, you should work in Mississippi for just a little bit, because Mississippi is a whole different breed. Governor Kirk Fordyce was there at the time. The only governor I know for sure to have said on the air to a reporter, I will whip your ass. Um, <laughs> At, the, at that time, my wife had come here to work for Channel 4. She wasn't my wife at the time. She was just a woman I was deeply in love with. She decided she was going to leave and come here to work. I had to make a decision about whether I was going to follow her here or stay in Mississippi politics. I quit my job without having a job here. Got a couple interviews with the TV station up in Asheville, one TV station in Spartanburg, Channel 7. Station in Asheville decided they didn't want to hire me. The station in Spartanburg said they would, but they wanted me to work out in Greenwood. It's the best shot I had. And I was just about to sign the contract. And in my head, I make this very dramatic. It probably wasn't anything like that, but I make it very dramatic, almost like if you saw the movie Moneyball, where they're trying to like put this trade together and Billy Bean calls and says, I don't want your pitcher pitching against me tonight, send him over. That's, that, in my head, that's what this was like. Probably what happened was he was trying to lock up my wife for as long as possible because she was the talented one among us. But that gave me a chance to work in journalism here in the upstate, that place that I ended up loving. Came on a three-year contract and I'm here 20 years later. So that was the first phone call. That, that was the one that got me to South Carolina. The second phone call came in 2001. And in 2001, I was kind of the reporter that enjoyed being out on the street in the middle of as much dangerous stuff as you could possibly imagine. As, as, as much tragedy as I saw, and I saw way too much of it over the course of the time that I was in journalism, I still couldn't get away from the fact that the, the stories about justice and the stories about seeking justice happened around those tragic events that had all the stuff that I didn't really want to see. So I was never any more happy than when I was out in the middle of something terrible happening. And that sounds very strange, but that's what the situation was. So there was one day in 2001 where I was working on what I considered to be a very boring story. But we were doing a story about a burning ban because the weather was just like it is right now and they wouldn't let anybody burn anything. And it was one of the more boring stories I'd ever produced. I wanted anything other than that to happen at that very moment. And at that very moment, I looked down and I had a voicemail from the Department of Probation, Pardon, and Parole. And that voicemail was confirming that a call that I'd made a few days earlier about whether a man named Charles Wakefield had been paroled was actually true. Because I couldn't find any way to believe that Charles Wakefield had been paroled. I called and they said, in fact, he had been paroled. And this was in 2001. So we're 26 years or so into uh, the sentence that was supposed to be a life sentence. I, at that point, thought I had the biggest scoop in the world. And, you know, I had traveled. But when I left Mississippi, I left with a dog named Scoop in the passenger seat beside me uh, because we had gotten a dog in the newsroom named and it was called Scoop. And getting a scoop at that time was not like it is today. Back then, you know, there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. Because there was no Twitter and there was no Facebook, if you got something on television at night at six o'clock that nobody else had, well, you're the station that people are going to watch. And it felt like a very big score. Today, it feels terrible to even think about it this way, but that's what it felt like at the time. So what I did at that time is I, I spent the entire day researching. By six o'clock that night, I was live with a story. And in that story, I was speaking to the retired police chief of Greenville, a guy named Mike Bridges, who had been the lead investigator in the Looper murders case. And he stood in his driveway. And if you've ever heard the phrase righteous indignation, this man was the definition of it. He was red-faced, he was yelling, and he was very upset that Charles Wakefield had been paroled. And uh, I'm not gonna play a ton of clips tonight, but I am gonna play just a couple. This, this is what he sounded like back in 2001. This right here is a miscarriage of justice. And it's just beyond me, beyond me. 
how a man that kills two people in an armed robbery, one a law enforcement officer and his father, and ruins all those lives, and they let him walk out. It's the last thing that I want to deal with, but, uh, you know, this really upsets me, and, I, and there's no reason for it, no call for it, and it's miscarriage of justice, and, and I hope that, that somebody, somebody has to answer some tough questions on this case. So that was Mike Bridges that night, and I felt very proud of myself. I, at the time, was in my mid-20s and thought that I had just done a job for my community that, uh, that no other person could do, and I was proud. In fact, I was so proud um, to the point of embarrassment. I went home and I wrote an essay that night about how I, I, you know, I started to worry about whether I had a role in journalism anymore. And, but tonight, I've actually done my job and I've helped my community. It wasn't too long after that that uh, a young man from New York showed up in a black leather jacket, had a goatee beard, and he drops a 750-page file on my desk and he goes, read that. And if you still believe Charles Wakefield's guilty afterward, then we don't have to talk anymore. Otherwise, give me a call. So I started reading, and I read it through once, and I read it through again, and I read it over Christmas. And by the end of it, I realized that the three hours of research that I've done that afternoon should have been more like 20 years of research, which is actually what I've been doing ever since. That's turned into what I'm doing today. I love the upstate. I wouldn't have stayed here if I didn't love the upstate. I came here uh, on a job and on a three-year contract, and I stayed, and I decided to, to raise my family here. I mean, typically, if you're a TV news reporter, you get in, and you get out as quickly as you can, and you go on to the bigger, you know, bigger job somewhere, Charlotte, Atlanta, anywhere. I ended up staying, and I should have stayed at television uh, a little bit longer than I did, I think, because maybe I could have solved this problem a little bit sooner than 20 years later. Because I didn't, I had to think about the fact that Charles Wakefield, because of the story I did that night, at least as far as I was concerned at that point, his parole was rescinded and he went straight back to prison. He never left prison, he was there. After I left journalism, I stood there and I, I went on to a new job. You know, I left journalism entirely. And I kept thinking about Charles and the fact that Charles was still in prison. And the fact that I'd read this 750 page police file through several times and that I knew exactly how the case came together. The way he was convicted at the very least, guilt or innocence aside, the way he was convicted was not what I thought Greenville was all about. And it made me very uncomfortable uh, that I was living in a city that I loved, that I'd chosen to stay in, that I decided to raise my children in, and that this had happened. And it made me even more uncomfortable to know that I played a role in him staying in prison. Now, there was a, there was a more rational part of me that realized that if I hadn't done it, that it probably still would have happened. You know, the Greenville News would have picked it up or the police chief would have found out, and the very same thing might have happened. But that didn't allow me to find any sort of closure with myself about how it worked out. I spent another you know, 15 years thinking about it. There was a point, okay, I need to confess something. I am not a podcaster. I am not. I, I have no idea what I'm doing at all. Um, you know, I've, I've produced 15 hours of original content so far, and I still don't know, think I'm doing it right. I love podcasts. I listen to them when I walk my dog or when I went on long drives. But the biggest reason that I say that I'm not a podcaster and the reason I always said I was never a podcaster, and if anybody can sing like 18-part harmony really fast, this is one of those points where if I used sound effects in the podcast, I would have this gigantic angelic harmony that goes, ah, because I was ah, a writer. I was a writer, and I didn't think that a writer needed to be doing a podcast, and I was going to write a book. I stopped thinking about doing anything other than my job or working on writing. I tried to put Charles aside in my head, and sometime after I left television, I wrote a novel because that's, you know, if you're a writer, you're going to write a novel. And it was based 
and set right here in Greenville, South Carolina, and based loosely on a lot of the people that live in this community. And it was a satirical novel based on the redevelopment of Main Street and the people who were getting kicked out and a guy who owned a used bookstore and his, his fight against the city trying to take it. I love that book. I loved it like you love a, you know, like an old dog that shows up underneath your porch and just won't go away. He never always does anything, but you still love him because he's there all the time. I made a list of 100 agents. I had a spreadsheet because I love spreadsheets. I started going down these agents one by one by one by one. And they all said it sucks. At that point, I'm like, you're right. It probably does, in fact, suck. Um, which is why the fact that John Jeter gets an agent like now is freaking amazing. Um, and he should be very proud of himself because getting an agent at all is a, a really tough thing to do. And so I gave up on being a novelist. And I went back to doing my job. And I went back to being a family man and tried to be a good guy. And I managed to not be a novelist again until about 2011 when my dad died. After my dad died, I started thinking about a lot of different things. I started working on a novel that I had 90% finished. And just about the time it was, I, I thought I was there, I got a call from a guy named Chuck Reese, who runs a site called The Bitter Southerner out of Atlanta. And it's been very good to me. He said, I need a story from you. I need a story about gambling. What I haven't said yet is that the job that I took when I left television was that I went into the gambling industry and I wrote about poker games. At the same time, I was running around Greenville playing in all these underground poker games. I found this story. You know, there was this really bad event that happened at one of these underground poker games. It turned into a 10,000 word epic story that I produced with a bitter southerner. It was great for me. It was great for my confidence. But more than anything, it gave me a taste of investigative journalism again. And I, I, wanted to, I wanted to write again. I just wanted to keep doing it. And so I was so high on all of that that by the time I finished, I'm like, I'm going to call Charles Wakefield. <laughs> which was terrifying. Um, and I remember sitting there looking at my phone, excuse me, and thinking, I'm not going to call him. I can't call him. Because as far as I know, he's ready. I mean, right now, he would still like to hurt me because I you know, kept him in a cage for 10 years. I'll never forget the moment to where I finally you know, pressed send on the phone. And I said, Mr. Wakefield, my name's Brad Willis. I don't know if you know who I am. And his words were, oh, I know exactly who you are. There's just this silence. And I sit for a second and I'm trying to decide what to do next. And I just said, I'm sorry. And that's how I started. Um, from there, I eventually told him that I wanted to write a magazine article about him. And he said he had zero interest in me writing a magazine article about him, but he wanted to write a book. Within you know, another 15 minutes, we decided that we'd get together and see if maybe I could ghostwrite a memoir for him. And I felt like maybe that was a good opportunity for us to get together and talk. A couple days later, I'm driving down I-85 toward Easley. I got my you know, windows open, listening to some music. It's a beautiful spring day. And I think to myself, I'm about to go see a guy that's been on death row who has zero reason to like me at all. And I'm going to get face to face with him right now. I could be at home doing anything else. I'm about to do this. Should I? I, mean, I had no idea what kind of guy he was going to be like. And I pull into this neighborhood in Easley and I see this big, towering, strong man, but he's leaned over, you know, like this. And I finally see why. It's because he's got his hand down and he's leading this little girl on a walk through a neighborhood on this beautiful spring day. You know, that day, Charles and I decided we were going to work together. Um, and I was going to help him write this memoir. And it was going to give me a chance to, to be a 
to be a writer, at least in some way. I asked Charles at one point about the moment that he realized that he was not getting out of prison in 2001 and he was staying there. It was one of the harder things to ask him and he was very kind, but this is part of what he said. That week, I had called my stepmom and I told her, I said, Mama, I made parole and I'm getting ready to come home. You know, I found out, you know, a week later that they had took it back. It was in the newspapers. I read it in the news, it was state news. And then they sent me the official letter. I was devastated. I was heartbroken. You know, I thought that after, after all those years that it would finally be over. I was devastated. I struggled. You know, normally when I get a setback like that, you know, I'll struggle for three or four days. Then I'll start back fighting. I had told my mom, I said, you know what? I'm finally gonna get out. I'm finally gonna be able to try to do some things to help you, you know, and I uh, had wrote him a letter, you know, apologizing for not being the son that I knew I could be. I was just looking forward to living a better way of life, being a better son, you know, to my, to my father. And it was devastating. It was awful. So that's hard to hear. Every time I listen to it, it's hard to hear. In fact, a lot of that hasn't even been in the podcast yet. I just listened to it this afternoon and thought I'd play it tonight because I, I thought that he was going to be here. And I, I wanted everybody to know that that's still hard for me to hear today because despite the fact that I've spent the last four years working on this, the very reason that I started to do it in the first place was guilt, you know? And if you've never done something because of guilt, it's one hell of a motivator. You know, Tony Robbins, motivational speaker, has got nothing on guilt. So... We're all set to write this memoir, and I'm excited because it's going to be something that's very easily fit within my current life. I remember I was sitting out on my back porch one day, and Charles calls, and he says, Brad, I think I'd like you to do some investigating. I, without him being able to hear it, just looked away and said, oh, hell no. Because, number one, this case is 45 years old, all right? This happened you know, 45 years ago. I'm 45 years old. I, 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 was, I was a, a little bitty thing when this happened, who am I to come into a community that I didn't grow up in and start investigating a story that is about its past when I was a child when it happened? And I just said, oh, hell no. And I was like, I spent a day thinking about how am I going to tell Charles I'm just not going to do it. And then I made the mistake of doing just a little bit of investigating that night. You know, I'm right back into it again. And that's what I ended up doing. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I now I'm no longer writing a memoir. I'm now going to write this big investigative nonfiction piece or, or book. And I don't even know what it is at this point. I know it's going to be gigantic because I, all of a sudden I find myself in this world where it's not just one man being convicted of a crime that says he, he says he didn't commit. I, I'm, I'm investigating an entire city and an entire power structure and a gang of bank robbers and a gang of people who kill and, uh, you know, drug thieves and a, a, a law enforcement officer. There's like one of the few that seems to be not corrupt in town and it's become something else entirely. This goes on for quite a while. And I've got this buddy uh, who's a British journalist who has to listen to me talk about a lot of things. And he heard me talk about this for the very first time in 2010. We were sitting, sitting in a bar for probably way too long in Los Angeles. And I told him about it. He loved the story. He said, you absolutely need to do this. And six years later, when I still hadn't done it, we were sitting in a bar in Las Vegas, probably also too long a night. And he just looks at me and goes, Brad, 
this needs to be a podcast. And I said some things to him that I can't say in this room right now um, for fear of you know, making the governor school man. But I said some bad things to him. And uh, he, just, you know, he shrugged as he does, and he was off. Another year or two passes, and my long-suffering wife has watched me on the couch you know, researching and watched me in my office researching and watched me just going crazy trying to make this happen, looks at me and says, honey, this has got to be a podcast. And I wouldn't say the same things to her that I said to Howard, but the implication was the same. I let it go. And for the next year or so, I continued to make her miserable and make myself miserable trying to figure out this answer. If you're going to write a book that is this big, epic, sprawling thing about an entire city and its power structure and its justice system, but you don't know what the ending is, how do you write it? What do you do? How do you write that book? And I kept seeing myself trying to submit a book to a publisher that didn't have an ending and say, I'll figure it out eventually. Um, and, you know, a anyway, hundred agents turned me down on the book that I thought was awesome. So that wasn't going to work out. So one night I'm, I'm painting my bedroom, uh, which is like the least zen of activities I could have been doing at the time. But I'm listening to a podcast called In the Dark. And if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It's the best both seasons. If you ever watch an M. Night Shyamalan movie, he always has a twist at the end of the movie. And you go through the entire movie, like, like believing in his entire world that he's built. And at the end, you're like, ah, why didn't I see that coming? That's sort of what happened there. And I walked downstairs to my wife and I said, it needs to be a podcast. And she goes, I know, and walks away. Um, so I won't say she was smug, but she was at least pleased that I finally come around to her way of thinking. I won't, I won't belabor the entire process that I went through after that, but basically I didn't know what I was doing. And I had to figure out the equipment. I had to figure out the music. I had to figure out the hosting and the financing and the insurance and all of it. Another confession, my biggest fear ever is that I'm going to fail at anything. I'm going to fail at journalism. I'm going to fail as a father. I'm going to fail at whatever. That's the only fear. I give me a spider. Give me a snake. Put me in a dangerous situation. I don't care. If I fail, that's going to be the thing that actually I mess up at. So I'm afraid that I'm going to ruin this by trying to make it a podcast when I have no idea how to do a podcast. That was about this time last year. And now I've got 20 episodes in, 15 hours, and you know I look around this room and I've got people who are listeners. I've got people who are part of the show. I've got people that I literally have been like what my wife calls invisible internet friends with for years, but have never like, there's Tom right here. I, I, I've never met the man like face to face in my life, but we've been communicating for at least the last decade. That's where I'm now, that's where I am now. Um, it's a weird situation to be in, but I feel like it's doing some good. You know, I, th I honestly thought that by August that I would know whether this was going to be a success or not. I still don't know. I still don't know if this is going to be a success. But I launched the trailer for it on January 31st, which was the 44th anniversary of Frank and Rufus Luke were getting murdered, murdered over on Pennington Street. On February 26th, I launched the first episode. And that was the 43rd anniversary of Charles Wakefield being sentenced to death. I didn't say that out loud, but I did it. I just did it for me, I guess. For two weeks after it came out, I was very confident. And I thought this is actually rolling really, really well. And then I realized I hadn't slept in two weeks and I was hallucinating and that I was terrified of everything. Um, and that's the way it stayed. That's the way it stayed until April, where I had basically not slept for about three months. And if I hadn't promised my kids I'd take them to freaking Universal Studios for spring break, it probably still would have happened. But I finally took a break and realized I needed to take a breath and take stock of where I was or I was going to mess the story up. And, you know, if your biggest fear is failure, that is that was what was I was afraid was going to happen. Is that I was going to go put myself sleepless so long that I was going to mess it up. So 
I figured out some of the protocol and figured out how to do things a little bit better. And then this weird thing happened that I never expected to happen to where this community of people who listen to the show here started talking to each other and they started like making friendships. My, uh, one of my biggest concerns when I started this was that I would be a pariah in my community. You know, I had tons of friends who were cops and prosecutors and everything like that. I felt I would become a pariah for exposing all the secrets. What ended up happening was the exact opposite. All, you know, all the old cops are whispering in my ear and telling me thank you for doing it. And all the listeners who had been around for a long time are getting together and saying, how can we help? It was the most gratifying thing in the world to see this group come together and just start helping me pay for the thousands of dollars that I spent to put it together. I think if anything, beyond you know, the initial motivation to make right what I did wrong to begin with, that was a gigantic motivating factor, realizing there are people out there, like some of you here tonight, who helped and have helped a lot. I think the idea of community is, it goes beyond just being part of a city that is now celebrated everywhere. It's, it's something that we can form here, you know, and you know, when this is over tonight, I'll sit around, I'll have a drink with a bunch of the people who listen and have helped out and whatever, because it's, um, it's pretty cool. Here's something you don't know about podcasting. You have to listen to yourself all day long, every day. And then someday somebody's going to tell you about a vocal click. And I don't know what a vocal click is, but you're going to hear about it one day. And once you hear it, you can't unhear it. And that click is when like when your mouth's a little bit dry, your tongue comes off, your palate goes, and you hear it. And you hear it when you're trying to produce an hour-long episode, you hear it every little, and you spend hours doing it. That's why I'm terrified of being up here, because without water, which is about, um, about gone, because vocal clicks. Um, so I talked about the fact that Charles was in prison. I talked about the fact that I decided to become a novelist again after my dad died. The reason that happened is because once my dad died, I'd been to two or three funerals within two or three years. And you start to hear stories that you don't hear when the people were alive. You hear the stories that people either kept quiet because they were a little bit scandalous or it was just not within the reputation. So after my dad died, I started thinking about the fact that Charles' dad died while he was in prison, not too long before he got out. Charles didn't have a chance to say goodbye to him. You know, I didn't have a chance to say goodbye to my dad, but I had at least seen him within the last month. Uh, he didn't have a chance. You start to think about what a legacy means for a family, what a legacy means for a person. That stuck with me for a really long time. And as I started producing this, I realized that as much as we love to celebrate Greenville, at the same time, we have a responsibility, I think at least, to acknowledge the fact that things aren't exactly as they now as they were then. Because if we don't, then we ignore what happened in the 1960s. We ignore what happened in the 1970s. We ignore what was still happening in the 1980s. And it's not, it's not just an injustice against one man. It's there, you know, whether it was the matters of desegregation, whether it was Sterling High School, there are so many things that we just choose not to acknowledge just so we can continue to make sure that we look great. Um, and I, again, I'm the, well, I, I, I try to get people to move to Greenville daily, daily, but at the same time, I want them to know, you know, we didn't come from the best past. You know, we had to improve to get where we are and we still have room to improve. So thank you so much. Bless you all. This is amazing. No more vocal clicks. So I wanted to acknowledge that. And I thought that that was where this would the, the basic thematic element that would run through this was, was reckoning with our past. And I became so gung-ho about it that I, at least for a while, forgot about something that I learned when I was in television. 
And the thing that I learned when I was in television, I, television didn't teach me, it was just bad experience, is that tragedy is not entertainment. You know, the true crime, crime genre, whether it's on television or podcast or whatever, you know, you're dealing with murder after murder after murder and pain and pain and pain and injustice. And it's not meant to be entertainment. It shouldn't be entertainment. I was the type of guy that even though I covered tragedy all the time as a reporter, walking up on a doorstep of the mother of a murder victim and asking her to say something was something that I could almost not bring myself to do. And when I did it, I felt terrible and I felt dirty and I hated everything about it. There was a moment, there was a young kid that started after I did, and he was a photographer out in Spartanburg, uh, who's frankly today a wonderful, wonderful guy and a wonderful photographer. But he was young, he didn't know what he was doing. And there was this terrible scene where three or four kids had died in a car wreck uh, out in Spartanburg County. And we're there when it happens because that's what we do. When he goes to edit the story and put it on the air, I don't realize what he's doing, but what he's done is he's included these screams of anguish and pain from the people who've just realized that their friends have died. I don't know, I'll never forget those screams and I'll never forget his face when he realized that he shouldn't have been doing it. That changed the way I look at journalism in a lot of different ways. Part of reckoning with yourself and your city is the fact that you're gonna to have to make those hard decisions sometimes about who you talk to and why. And I, I promised myself that no matter what I talked about when I was up here tonight, that I was gonna talk about one thing that happened not too long ago, just because it's the thing that came closer to breaking me than anything else has so far in this. I had a very well-meaning person who uh, listens to the show, who supports the show with money, uh, who has associations uh, with the people who live back then, who told me a story, and I'm not gonna go into it because I don't wanna identify her or frankly anybody that's involved with it. Somebody told me a story um, about a guy that was partners with one of the murder victims. And it was during a very weird time. And the story involved the fact that this man killed himself. This man killed himself under very weird and strange circumstances. It sounded legit enough that I had to start at least looking into it because there were times back then when people looked at suicides and said, yeah, it's a suicide, but it probably wasn't. The only thing I could think to do after being you know, turned down everywhere else, yeah, it's terrible. So I wrote his son an email. And I did it in a way that I hoped would be as completely fair to him as possible. And I just, I just said, listen, please ignore this if everything I'm about to say is, is wrong. And I apologize in advance. Asked, you know, was there any point in your life or any point in your family's life that you thought that your father's suicide wasn't actually a suicide? Jason Isbell was coming to town uh, the next day and I was pretty excited about it. I woke up the next morning and I had an email from this guy. It's about 500 words long and none of it's nice. <laughs> the thing that I can't forget is that he says, I know my father's suicide was a suicide because I watched him shoot himself in the head. And yeah, I'm still not over that. But that's the type of thing that I've had to do again that I don't wanna do, but I feel like if I don't, then the thing that I started out doing to begin with, I shouldn't have even started. The flip side of this, I found so many people that when I make these phone calls or write these emails or whatever else, that are just begging and waiting for me to call. All they just wanted somebody that they, they're like, where have you been? You know, I, I, I think I had like one week to where three grown men cried on the phone with me. 
for various reasons. You know, one, one cried because he was a law enforcement officer that was caught up in some corruption. And he tells me this amazing story of delivering the first baby uh, of a year in, in Greenville County, you know, in the backseat of a car. And he's crying while he's telling me because his entire career was ruined because of what happened. You know, I had a man you know, talking about how much he missed his father. And then there was this story. This is the one I think that probably drove me more than anything. I'm friends with a woman here in town whose family grew up over on the west side. I was with her one day and I was telling her about this. And she goes, well, my daddy knows all of those people. I said, well, ask your dad if he wants to talk to me. So she goes and she tells her dad what I'm talking about. And uncharacteristically, he just screams at her. He just screams at her and says, don't ask me about that ever again. And so she backs off, you know, that day. But then she goes back a week later and she says, daddy, I'm sorry. And he just starts bawling. He just starts crying. And I can't tell you why necessarily, and I don't even know if it matters in the grand scheme of things overall, but the simple fact is that there's people who lived back then who have unresolved things in their life. They all surround what was happening in Greenville County in you know, the mid-1970s. You know, there was so much corruption, and we just don't know how far it goes. And the fact that there's all of these people out there, you know, there's people in this room right now who have a lot of questions still. There's people who are in this room who have been hurt really, really bad in a lot of different ways. I feel like it's my responsibility because I started this to finish it for them. Um, I, I don't know necessarily that I would call it a catharsis because the problem is, just like with the book, I, don't, I still don't know how it's going to end. But the reason that my wife said it should be a podcast and the reason that my friend Howard said it should be a podcast and the reason that I ultimately made it a podcast is because... When I started it, I didn't know what the ending was, but I also hadn't talked to about 40 or 50% of the people that I've talked to since then. Because people hear other people talk, and then they feel comfortable coming forward and saying something. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know, I literally have no idea how the story will end in general. But at the very least, I know that we will have done our best. When I started this, uh, I realized at the time that there was a guy named Andy Etheridge, who was a little bit younger than I am, but he calls himself an amateur historian as a joke, uh, but he, had been researching the story at the very same time I had. And because I was so eager to keep the scoop, I ignored him and his queries for a long time. But in the end, we finally got together. And one night we were sitting in his office and I asked him to tell me you know, what drove him. He said this, which to this day, I sort of feel like is the theme of the entire thing. It it's it's interesting because you know to make light of the politics of the day and the blue lives matter versus black lives matter here's a instance in 1975 where neither one of them mattered and that's the tragedy in it um it doesn't matter who you voted for um if you can't see the tragedy in in a, a story being told where neither one life mattered that that's that's hard um but it's, it's something that I think the town's going to have to look on. Um, I think the, the issues of race, for me as an as amateur historian. Um, you keep putting air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's my own title. It's a self-given title. Uh, but I think that those horrendous acts that occurred in the 60s, and those kind of get, well, that was the time. But in the 1970s, 
I think that Greenville almost gets, they feel they get a, or they use it as a pass somewhat because they elected a Holocaust survivor, you know, Jewish man to mayor. And he was a driving force in this community. And it's almost like, well, look what we've done. And even today, that's look what we've done. Look how far we've come. Oh, yeah, but we don't talk about that nasty little episode back then. I mean, and that's that's what it is. You, you, you are... You are the stories that make you up. You know, it's nothing that it's a, it's a town that's a, a whole bunch of different tales, and some are cool and some are rosy and some, some are ugly, and you got to someone has to tell it the right way. This is an attempt to tell it the right way. Andy is a, a really thoughtful guy, and has inspired me a lot along this journey as we, as we went by. And again, I don't know where this is going. I, I, I'm very thankful for all the people who came out tonight to just listen about it because it makes me feel like there are people who, who, who still care about what happened back then. I tell my kids two things. Willis's don't lie and Willis's keep their promises. Liars are the type of people that bother me a lot and have forever. And I feel like what I'm doing right now is not trying to rectify a lie, at least trying to rectify something that hasn't been told in full with all truth. The promise is a different story because when I started this, I told Charles that I was gonna finish and I told my wife I was gonna finish and I told my kids I was gonna finish. It's got much more emotional, sorry. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know how it's gonna finish, but I do know that I'm going to. I'm gonna keep my promise and I appreciate uh, the fact that everyone's helped me with it so far, thanks. Thanks to all the listeners, the people from Amateurs, etc., the students from the Governor's School, all my friends, and just the new people that I got to meet for coming out that night. If you'd like to learn more about the Emrys Foundation, go to emrys.org. And I'll be back with another episode of Murder, etc. before you know it. Mm-hmm.